Ave Maria Purissima, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because of time and in certain cases content, I've edited, cut, and pasted quotes as usual. And I'm sorry, but there are far too many sources to cite them all without blogging down in this sermon. Although we're going to be straight talking today, we need to always remember we have to give the Pope every benefit of the doubt. We don't want to become Protestants and start using private judgment. So once again, I would like to recommend Father Ripperger's book, Magisterial Authority. And finally, please do not put words in my mouth. Do not interpret or read anything to what I'm going to say or assume that I'm trying to say something that I'm not saying. I speak my mind. I'm picking my words very carefully and do not wish to be misunderstood in such a grave undertaking. For many are called, but few are chosen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Pope Francis has frequently urged his clerics to use parisia in their speech. Okay, great. So what does that mean? Parisia is a Greek word which means to speak the truth to power, boldly and courageously without any fear of even the mightiest. And since it's very, very rare for the high and mighty to appreciate truth, it involves some danger to the speaker. So today we're going to heed the Pope and speak with Parisia. Okay, as we saw last week, the role of the magisterium, that's the divinely instituted living teaching authority of the Catholic Church, made up of the popes, the Pope and the bishops in union with him, the role of the magisterium is to safeguard, clarify, and transmit the deposit of faith. And remember, the deposit of faith is a collection of all the truths which were revealed by God, that was handed down from Christ to the apostles, and it closed with the death of the last apostle, St. John. So all the truths necessary for salvation have been revealed. So since then, there never has and there never will be any new public revelation. It's complete. It contains both truths to be believed and principles of conduct, things to be done. It has two parts, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And the contents of the deposit of faith are sacred scripture, the dogmas of the faith, Christian morals, the seven sacraments, and the hierarchical constitution of the church. Okay, so the role of the magisterium, the Pope and the bishops in union with him, is to safeguard, clarify, and transmit the deposit of faith down to the end of time. And we saw that the Pope can and should explain things perhaps more clearly that have already been revealed. He can and should apply the unchangeable teachings and principles and dogmas found in the deposit of faith to new situations. But in the sense of coming up with some novel thing never heard of in the church, he was not given that power. According to the teaching of Vatican I, quote, the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of Peter in order that by his revelation they might disclose new teaching, but so that by his assistance they might devoutly guard the revelation handed down to the apostles, the deposit of faith, and might faithfully set it forth. Close quote. Okay, so that's the Pope. Then what about the bishops? A bishop teaches as a successor of the apostles, and so in regards to his teaching, he's not entitled to do anything besides upholding the deposit of faith. The point is that the role of the magisterium, again, that's the pope and the bishops in union with him, is to safeguard, clarify, and transmit the deposit of faith whole entire right until the end of time, not to invent unheard of novelties, okay? Okay, so over the past few weeks, we've been reviewing some fundamental points of the unchanging and unchangeable Catholic faith. We've looked at the magisterium and the deposit of faith. We've reviewed some basic teachings regarding marriage, some basic teachings regarding the sacrament of penance, and some of the basic teachings regarding the most blessed sacrament of the altar and the worthy reception of Holy Communion. Now let's start tying these things together, starting with marriage. 
As we've seen, marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. A man and a woman make the contract, and if it's validly made, then God makes the relationship. We've also seen the exact contract that a man and woman make that results in the relationship of marriage. Here's the exact contract. A man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. Okay, so marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. And the contract that results in marriage is a man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. If this contract is validly made, then God makes the relationship. And although this is painful to say, by his words and actions, Pope Francis has shown that at least to some degree, he opposes each and every one of these unchanging and unchangeable truths about marriage. In his speech, he seems to be a man of very great contradictions. So it's only fair to say that in regards to some of these topics, it would also be possible to find him stating what appears to be the opposite. That being said, and recognizing that we are speaking of the Pope here, and he is the Pope, and wanted to give him every benefit of the doubt, as is his right, I will try to be as balanced and fair as possible in the time we have. And we need to realize that in no way are we able to cover all the issues in a sermon. Let's get started. As against the unchangeable teaching that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. I truly believe that understanding the Pope's approach to this topic is the key to understanding a whole host of his actions and comments regarding marriage. So we'll spend a bit more time here than on the other topics. Quote, June 17, 2016, LifeSite News. At a pastoral congress on the family for the Diocese of Rome, Pope Francis said that some cohabitating couples are in a real marriage, receiving the grace of the sacrament. Pope Francis, quote, I've seen a lot of fidelity in these cohabitations, and I am sure that this is a real marriage. They have the grace of a real marriage because of their fidelity. Close quote. What exactly are we saying? We are saying that some cohabitating couples are in a real marriage, receiving the grace of the sacrament. Well, we're saying that it is possible, at least for some couples, to commit two very, very serious mortal sins. Shacking up, which is the sin of scandal, and fornication. And by committing those two serious sins, by an actual commitment to not get married, coupled with an actual commitment to live in sin, these couples then become married. God makes the relationship of marriage, and they receive the grace of the sacrament. If that sounds blasphemous... Well, it should. We're saying that 2,000 years of explicit teaching on this matter are completely wrong. That's what we're saying here. We're saying that at least some couples can fornicate their way into the state of grace. That's what we're saying here. Let's be clear. You cannot fornicate your way into the state of grace. More and more fornication, even years of fornication, do not produce a sacrament. More and more fornication, even years of fornication, cannot produce a sacrament. With all due respect to the Pope, and in spite of these sort of claims, we do owe him due respect. He is the Pope. But with all due respect to the Pope, it doesn't matter what the Pope says. More and more fornication, even years of fornication, do not and cannot produce a sacramental marriage. People that shack up 
are not married. Without being a bit sarcastic, it's just a simple fact that in order for a couple to be married, that couple actually has to get married. In order for a couple to be married, that couple actually has to get married. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, the Pope also poses the idea that the marriage contract results in a relationship. When in the same conference, the Pope said, quote, The great majority of our sacramental marriages are null because they say yes for the rest of my life, but they don't know what they're saying. Close quote. In other words, even when a couple does get married, the vast majority of them do not have a marriage. Now, to be absolutely fair, although the video of these comments is readily available, it makes it clear that this is what the Pope actually said. The official Vatican transcript changed the words from the great majority of Catholic marriages are null to a part of them are null. So on the one hand, the Pope says that it's possible, at least for some couples, to commit two very, very serious mortal sins, shacking up, which is the very, very serious sin of scandal, and fornication. And by committing those two serious sins, by committing those two serious sins, by an actual commitment to not get married, coupled with an actual commitment to live in sin, these couples then become married. God makes the relationship of marriage, and they receive the grace of the sacrament. And on the other hand, the Pope says that the great majority of those Catholics who have actually gone through a wedding and gotten married are not married. According to the Pope, then, when people don't get married, then they do get married. And when people do get married then they don't get married. As against the unchangeable teaching that marriage is exclusive, that is to say, between one man and one woman, and perpetual, that is to say, until the death of one of the spouses. Divorce and remarriage are clearly opposed to both of these teachings. In that regard, recently the Pope established so-called fast-track annulments. Now remember what an annulment is. An annulment addresses only one question. Was the marriage contract validly made? Another way of phrasing that same question is to ask if at the moment of exchanging vows, did the man and woman validly consent to be married, okay? So an annulment is a finding by a church tribunal, a church court, that a marriage contract was not validly made, that at the moment of exchanging vows, the man and the woman did not validly consent to be married, and so no relationship came into being, because that can only happen as a result of a validly made contract. Okay, so there are a limited number of things that actually invalidate a marriage contract. There are only a limited number of ways of not getting it right. For example, perhaps one or both spouses were too young to contract for marriage at the time of exchange of vows. That would make the contract invalid. Perhaps one spouse was permanently impotent at the time of exchange of vows. That would make the contract invalid. Perhaps one spouse was not free to marry because he was already married at the time of exchange of vows. Obviously, that would make the contract invalid, right? Okay, so all of a sudden, the Pope issued a document for fast-track annulments. Annulments are free, and it takes 45 days to get. Free means everyone else gets to pay for it. By the way, where in the Catholic Church can you get married in 45 days? So in this document, the Pope lists about a dozen reasons that enable a couple to submit a case for a fast-track annulment. The most disturbing aspect of all this is that many of these reasons have nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not the marriage contract was validly entered into at the moment of the exchange of vows. Many of these reasons have nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not the couple validly consented to marriage. For example, 
One reason is the marriage broke up quickly. But as sad as that is, and it is sad, it's a tragedy. But still, that's after the fact. What does that have to do with the moment of consent? Another reason is the unplanned pregnancy of the woman. But what does that have to do with validly consenting to marriage? Another one has to do with the concealment of incarceration. But what does the fact that someone was in juvie hall or jail or prison have to do with the validity of consent to marriage? Nothing. Nothing at all. In other words, many of these supposed reasons for fast-track process annulments have absolutely nothing to do with annulments. And try explaining to someone why one thing the Pope says is ground for annulment, but another isn't. The painful fact is the Pope has now forced every priest who has to deal with these issues to have to choose between him, Pope Francis, or Christ. That's the choice here. In most dioceses, it is now probably much easier to get out of a marriage than to get out of a car lease agreement. Now think about that. Think about that. That's not an accident. On the same day that the Fast Track Annulment document was released, the Vatican newspaper published an article explaining the purpose of this new Fast Track process. The author, Monsignor Pinto, was also the official presenter of the reform. I quote from an Italian commentator, quote, According to Monsignor Pinto, the invitation of Christ, present in their brother the Bishop of Rome, would be that of passing from the restricted number of a few thousand annulments to that immeasurable number of unfortunates who might have a declaration of nullity. That Christ wanted an immeasurable number of annulments is completely unheard of. Up to now, the ecclesiastical tribunals had always been reproached by popes because they were too indulgent in recognizing annulments. With Pope Francis, everything has been overturned, and they are now attacked for the opposite reason. Now large-scale annulment factories are to be set up. Close quote. Large-scale annulment factories are to be set up in order to pass from the restricted number of a few thousand annulments to the immeasurable number of unfortunates who might have a declaration of nullity. So much for the indissolubility of marriage, huh? In the introduction to the very document promulgating these fast-track annulments, the Pope himself remarked, quote, It has not escaped me how much an abbreviated judgment could put at risk the principle of the indissolubility of marriage. Close quote, Pope Francis. It has not escaped me how much an abbreviated judgment could put at risk the principle of the indissolubility of marriage. The Pope continues, quote, For precisely this reason, I have determined that the judge in such a procedure should be the bishop himself, who by virtue of his pastoral office is together with Peter the greatest guarantee of Catholic unity and faith and discipline. Close quote. Now think about that for a moment. The judge in such a procedure should be the bishop himself. It has not escaped me how much an abbreviated judgment could put at risk the principle of the, the, of the indissolubility of marriage. So the judge in such a procedure should be the bishop himself. Everybody thought about that. Okay, so let me ask you all a few questions. So who's got the bishops back here? Who's covering for them? Making sure they're remaining faithful to Christ in the deposit of faith, especially in an area as challenging as this. Well, let me put it another way. What kind of a job are the bishops doing in a related area? defending the unchanging and unchangeable teaching of Christ regarding contraception and sterilization. 
How's that working out? When's the last time you heard a bishop defend these teachings in a clear and unambiguous manner? They're not blind. They can see their people aren't having children. These are smart men. So have you ever heard a bishop explain and defend those teachings? So given that the vast majority of bishops have given no evidence whatsoever of being able to defend the church's teaching on contraception, why would anyone think they would be up to defending, all by themselves, the church's teaching on indissolubility? And that's the exact point. Christ himself put someone in the world to cover the bishops' back, to strengthen and support them, to make sure they remain faithful to Christ in the positive faith. That's why in Luke 22:32, Christ commanded Peter to strengthen his brethren. But instead of fulfilling his Christ-given office of strengthening his brethren, we see the Pope make the bishops themselves handle these fast-track cases, not their tribunals. The Pope is making the bishops themselves decide these cases, like they don't have a zillion other things to do. The whole idea of a tribunal is to help the bishop in his duties. But the Pope is making the bishops themselves deal with these cases and making them render a decision in 45 days. Any bets on how that's going to work out? Any bets on how many bishops are actually going to hold the line here? And they know this. In the official presentation of the fast-track system, Monsignor Pinto said, quote, A bishop with millions of faithful in his diocese could not personally preside over the decision of nullity for all the faithful who requested. Close quote. A bishop with millions of faithful in his diocese could not personally preside over the decision of nullity for all the faithful who requested. And in all this rush to break up marriages as fast as possible, and this lemming-like stampede to jump off the cliff into the eternal flames as rapidly as possible, who is being left out? Who is being forgotten? Christ, in the first place, Christ our Lord. And then, of course, the actual husband, the actual wife, the actual father, the actual mother, and the legitimate children. Where are they? One blog brilliantly summarized the situation in a very pointed posting entitled, A Future Conversation. Mama, what does pastoral mean? It means, child, that when your father and his new wife go to church, the priest has to pretend that I'm dead. As against the unchangeable teaching that marital rights are limited to acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. In one of his airplane interviews, the Pope actually came out for contraception in certain cases. And if there were any doubt exactly what the Pope meant, the next day, the Vatican spokesman, Father Federico Lombardi, clarified it for us. Father Lombardi told Vatican Radio, quote, The contraceptive or a latex device, in particular cases of emergency or gravity, could be the object of discernment in a serious case of conscience. This is what the Pope said, close quote. According to Lombardi, the Pope spoke of, quote, The possibility of taking recourse to contraception or latex devices in cases of emergency or special situations. He's not saying that his possibility is accepted without discernment. Indeed, he said clearly that it can be considered in cases of special urgency. Close quote. Keep in mind that contraception is intrinsically evil, which means it is always and everywhere evil, no matter what the circumstances, and with no exceptions whatsoever. And yet the Pope endorsed the use of hormonal contraceptives like the pill and latex devices. 
Talk about diabolical disorientation, and this is coming from the Pope himself. This is like endorsing blasphemy or San Francisco behavior. Let that sink in. We've never seen something like this before. Never. And all this gives all faithful priests another area in which they have to choose between Christ and the Pope, in which they must actually oppose the Pope if they want to save their souls. We could keep multiplying examples. The problem here was not finding controversial, astonishing statements. The problem was deciding what points were the most important to cover in the limited time we have in the sermon. Let's sum this up with some observations made by a well-known canon lawyer, Dr. Edward Peters. Quote, Pope Francis really, and I think sincerely, believes, A. Most marriages, at least most Christian marriages, really aren't deep-down marriages. And so the annulment process has to be sped up to dispatch of what are, after all, probably null marriages anyway. And the consequences of post-divorce marriages need to be softened because most people in those second marriages probably weren't in true marriages the first time, and so on. And B. Lots of things that aren't marriages, like cohabitation and civil-only weddings between Catholics, really are deep-down marriages. So we need to affirm them and assure them that they enjoy the same graces as Mary's people, and so on. That this is the Pope's view can, I suggest, be directly determined from his own words. Close quote. As I said earlier, I truly believe that this is the key to understanding a whole host of his actions and comments regarding marriage, and I was greatly heartened to see that Dr. Peters seems to be of a like mind in this particular matter. Dr. Peters, quote, I see no way to avoid the conclusion that a crisis over marriage is unfolding in the church. And it is a crisis that will come down to whether the church teaching on marriage will be concretely and effectively protected in church law, or whether legal categories treating marriage doctrine become so distorted or simply disregarded as essentially to abandon marriage and married life to the realm of personal opinion and individual conscience. Close quote. Okay, now with all that as background, let's talk about Amoris Laetitia. Amoris Laetitia is the title of a document issued by Pope Francis, released last April, which supposedly summarized the two synods on the family. From the beginning, it has been nothing but controversial, and as we learned recently, some 30 cardinals wrote to the Pope before he released it, warning him that it would not only weaken the Church's teaching on marriage, but on communion and confession as well. But that's not quite correct. Morris Letizia has not weakened the Church's teaching on marriage, Holy Communion, or confession. What it has done is produced an all-out attack on those teachings. So for the remainder of this sermon, we're going to try to grasp the Pope's understanding of his own document. So rather than waste any time getting bogged down in the ambiguous and confusing language of the document itself, we'll just take a quick look at the change in pastoral practices in several different dioceses as a result of this document and then quickly compare those new pastoral practices to the unchanging and unchangeable teaching of the church, okay? Why are we going to look at the pastoral practices in these particular dioceses to try to grasp the Pope's understanding of his own document? Because the Pope, to varying degrees, has shown his approval for the application of Amoris Laetitia in these dioceses. The dioceses are the Diocese of Rome, Obviously, as the Bishop of Rome, his intentions can be inferred from the pastoral guidelines established there. The Buenos Aires Pastoral Region of Argentina, 
The Pope wrote a letter to those bishops, quote, praising their guidelines as an authentic interpretation of Amoris Laetitiae. The letter goes so far as to say, there are no further interpretations, close quotes. And the Diocese of Malta, whose pastoral guidelines were published in the official newspaper of the Vatican, L'Osservatorio Romano. And although there are some differences, with a whole lot of verbal squidding sprayed all over these documents, nonetheless, in each instance, the bottom line is that active adulterers are to be given Holy Communion. It's truly a Henry VIII moment in the Church. It's truly a Henry VIII moment in the Church. The great Kazakhstan bishop Athanasius Schneider points out that clerics who make such guidelines to appease such sinners are in fact saying that they can continue in the joy of adultery. And he comments, quote, Admitting the divorced and remarried to Holy Communion without first demanding of them to live in continence and not to violate their sacramental bonds of marriage, not demanding of them to repent and to make a very serious intention not to sin in the future, and so dispensing them from this, we are at the same time destroying desecrating three sacraments which Christ gave us, the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of Eucharist, and the sacrament of marriage. Close quote, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Let's just take a quick sampling from each of these guidelines. First, the Maltese guidelines. Quote, in addition to allowing divorced and civilly remarried Catholics in their diocese to receive communion if they are at peace with God, the Maltese bishop said it might be humanly impossible for Catholics to abstain from marital relations when civilly remarried. Close quote. It might be humanly impossible for Catholics to abstain from marital relations when civilly remarried. It might be humanly impossible for Catholics to abstain from marital relations when civilly remarried. Oh, really? Well, besides being heretical to say that it is humanly impossible to keep the commandments, yes, you heard that right. Besides being heretical to say it's humanly impossible to keep the commandments, this kind of comment from a celibate instantly raises another question which is, what is her name? When you hear priests or bishops making comments that outrageous, you should think, what is her name? From the Argentinian guidelines, quote, Amoris Laetitia opens up the possibility of access to the sacraments of reconciliation and the Eucharist. Close quote. And the Roman guidelines ask, quote, who can decide? It could be none other than the confessor at a certain point in his conscience, after much reflection and prayer, who must assume the responsibility before God and the penitent and ask that the access take place in a discreet manner. Close quote. Now here we see three things. First, we see the Pope once again refusing to exercise his office of strengthening his brethren, not only by not protecting his bishops, but actually allowing them to dump this responsibility on the confessors. Better pray we have a lot of St. John the Baptist and St. John Fishers in the priesthood, because we're going to need them. Second, we see sacrilege. It would be a sacrilege on both sides to try to absolve such a person. The sinner would commit a sacrilege, since when that penitent makes his act of contrition, he must promise God that he's going to avoid sin and the near occasion of sin. He must promise God that he's going to amend his life. People who are living in sin simply cannot make a good act of contrition. In other words, they cannot be absolved because they are not sorry for their sins. It would be sacrilege for him to try. And on the side of the priest, it would also be a sacrilege. Since he is fully aware that this penitent is not properly disposed to be absolved, he knows that even if he were so evil as to attempt to absolve such a penitent, 
the absolution would just ricochet off, and he knows in such an invalid and evil attempt to do so, the priest would purchase him for himself eternal damnation. And we also see sacrilege in the suggestion that these unrepentant adulterers can and should receive Holy Communion. This is truly diabolical in the formal sense of the word. But we all know that. We all know that. We covered that in some detail a few weeks ago. But perhaps the worst of all this is that all this is by the guidelines, the suggestion, or perhaps even the orders of his bishop and the approval of the Pope. The guidelines of his bishop and the approval of the Pope. Better pray we have a lot of St. John the Baptist and St. John Fishers in the priesthood because we're going to need them. And the third thing we see is solicitation. Now remember that solicitation is both a mortal sin as well as a canonical crime. And it isn't limited simply to the confessor soliciting someone to sin in the common understanding of the word. It also includes evil advice regarding such manners as contraception, sterilization, fornication, adultery, perverse acts of any type, viewing impure images, entertaining impure thoughts, and so forth. And obviously, giving this sort of wicked advice to unrepentant adulterers, this type of diabolical advice that they can continue in their sinful state, is both the sin and the crime of solicitation. All this is by the guidelines, the suggestion, perhaps even the orders of his bishop, and the approval of the Pope. Better pray we have a lot of St. John the Baptist and St. John Fishers in the priesthood, because we're going to need them. Because this will eventually spread virtually everywhere. And it's already giving all the priests in those dioceses who wish to be faithful yet another area in which they have to choose between Christ and the Pope. Yet another area in which they must actually oppose the Pope. If they want to save their souls. Closing questions. Should St. John the Baptist have accompanied Herod? Will he slept with his brother's wife? If not, then why not? Should St. John Fisher have accompanied Henry VIII? Will he slept with a woman, not his wife? If not, then why not? Better pray we have a lot of St. John the Baptist and St. John Fishers in the priesthood, because we're going to need them. For many are called, but few are chosen.